Um, welcome to Encounter Church. Uh, happy, merry, early Christmas. I know for some of us, this is probably, we're kind of already launching in for the teachers um, in the room who are already celebrating the fact that you don't have to do anything but relax. For some of you, you're a little frantic because today is the 22nd. And so you have three days to do all of your Christmas shopping, and really it's two. Um, on that note, you know, give me 30 minutes, and then you can go to Amazon and start buying everything that you need to purchase. Um, a really quick, easy hack is there's an Amazon four-star store in Natick Mall. Um, great place to shop. Pull some lists off the Internet for five-star review stuff. That's how I do it because I let other people figure out what the best products are, and then I just buy those things. And it's like, oh, great, a... Wonderful. I needed something that cored apples for all the apples I don't eat. And you're like, that thing had really high reviews. It is the best apple corer on planet Earth. I did the research. Okay. So anyways, um, that's your freebie. Um, I love this time of the year. Um, it's such a magical time of the year with the lights and the decorations. But as we even launched into last week, it can also be a hard time of the year because Christmas accentuates, it exaggerates. The good is great and the bad is horrible. And uh, last week we looked at uh, the reality of how do we deal with difficult circumstances, um, how do we navigate difficult moments, because at around Christmas time, those difficult moments can't be ignored. And um, kind of like that, you can't ignore it. It's just they happen. In fact, this week, I, I had this realization, I should change what I'm preaching on today because it would make things different. Because like, last week I talked about how to deal with difficult circumstances. And then this week, my son got sick and spent the night in the hospital. And then last night, I got sick and was shivering. But at 3 a.m., when you have a fever, you can't really call anybody and say, hey, can you speak for me tomorrow morning in like six hours? Um, you know, so the, the fact is, I was like, you know what? I'm going to change my message today. I'm going to talk about how to have more money in your checking account than you've ever had, how to have long flowing hair, and how to get healthy and be have a six-pack no matter – how many other six-packs you're drinking, right? And so that's going to be my sermon today because that's what happened last week. And I'm thinking this week I'm going to set that into motion in my life too. So actually, no, um, what I want to talk to you about is this uh, news story I came across this past week. That was like, oh my goodness. Um, so in a village uh, outside of London, Harrogate, uh, police were responding to a call. There was an unidentified 25-year-old male who was throwing things at cars and ended up damaging about a dozen cars before the police arrive on scene around 7.30 p.m. When they get there and they begin to investigate, they take him into custody, what they realized was that this man had been throwing ferrets at cars. Yes, a ferret, a long, smelly rodent that you can get at, like, Petco, okay? That's what he was throwing at cars as they were driving by. And I was like, human beings are crazy. I mean, like the idea of like, I'm just going to go damage random cars. You know what? To really step it up, no one's ever thrown ferrets at cars. I'm going to throw ferrets at them as they ride by. That'll really leave a mark. Right? And I was just like this week, I'm kind of going through a bunch of news stories. And I kept coming across the realization of how crazy people are. This, this, I don't know if you saw where this woman, she'd passed away and they showed up at her house and they found her husband in the freezer and he'd been dead for years. And on his body, and on his dead body was a notarized letter saying, um, you know, I hereby tell you with the, this notary seal down here that my wife did not kill me. I'm like, for real? That's a, like a guaranteed way to get your wife arrested if she didn't kill you. 
Or the, the subway worker who ended up, this California subway worker who worked at Subway, the sandwich shop, not the ride and go to a destination subway shop, um, robs the very subway she works at. She wears a mask, but then she talks to people while she's there. And they're like, Lucille, is that you? And I'm like, what is wrong with us as a species? Like, how are we the top of the food chain on planet Earth? And the reality is, is that most of us don't have to be told people are crazy because we know they're crazy because we have to sit across the table from them this week. Or we have to sit across a table from them in two weeks in a board meeting. But humans, as for all the good things about us, there are some straight up crazy versions of us wandering around. And what I want to do today is where last week I talked about how to deal with difficult circumstances. Today I want to talk about how to deal with difficult people. Because National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, which is one of those kind of top-selling kind of um, classics around Christmas holidays, the reason Cousin Eddie, which is a character in that movie, is so iconic is because many of us have some version of Cousin Eddie. Many of us have some version of that person who, at the holiday season, drinks a little bit more than they should have, a little earlier than they should have, and they start saying things. And then you add it into the mix with what's happening in our country with an impeachment. And it's pretty much guaranteed to be volatile at any table this year, right? And so how do we navigate that? And what I want to do is I want to take you to one of Jesus' most famous moments and and really take you to just a series of sentences that he spoke in in the course of this, uh, probably one of the most famous messages he ever delivered. And in the course of us digging into this passage, what we'll find is that what was given to a first century audience within very first century circumstances transfers amazingly to us in the 21st century in dealing with difficult people. Um, If you have the Encounter Church app Jason referenced, um, you'll find in the message notes, I've already put it in there for you. If not, you're still downloading it. You'll see it on the screens behind me. Um, A little bit of context before I jump into it. Matthew is named after Matthew, who was one of Jesus's followers, original 12 followers. And Matthew was an accountant. He was very detail-oriented. He was Jewish, and he kind of grown up in that Jewish culture. Um, Not everyone in the New Testament grew up or came or wrote out of a Jewish context, but Matthew did. And so because of that, Matthew's book was originally intended for Jewish audiences. So there's a lot of... um, throwbacks to Jewish scriptures and teachings that they would have been intimately aware with. And so some of Matthew requires a little bit of digging into it, because to understand Matthew, you have to understand both um, the Roman first century um, Jewish context, but you also have to have a little bit of the backdrop of uh, Jewish scriptures. But when you have that, Matthew comes alive for you as a book. And Matthew Um, takes us to this really iconic moment, one of the pinnacles of his book that historically has been called the Sermon on the Mount, which is a little bit of a misnomer because the Sermon on the Mount is not exactly a sermon um, on the Mount. It's more like a teaching or a lesson on a hillside. Um, But Sermon on the Mount has stuck historically, and so that's what most people refer to it. The reason I say it's not so much a sermon is because What Matthew is doing when he unpacks and introduces this moment is that Jesus is on a hillside and he invites his followers to come and sit around him. Now, in that first century context, Jewish, kind of the Jewish culture, um, there was something called a rabbi, which was a teacher. 
Jesus is a rabbi. And, and one of the ways that rabbis would kind of train and develop their followers or future rabbis, which was what Jesus was doing as with these 12, these were future teachers, he, a rabbi would bring them in and he would unpack for them the way that he understands the world and the way he understands the scriptures. And so Jesus, when it says the Sermon on the Mount, like when people talk about it, Jesus wasn't talking to the crowd that was gathered around that day. What he was actually doing is talking to the 12 people who were sitting there listening to his teaching. The crowd was essentially, it would be like a, if someone Facebook lived, like maybe somebody that you, you would respect in your field, and they were doing a, a private seminar. And they were like, hey, I'm Facebook live right now. I'm getting ready to train some people in this new method that I've just come up with. That would be essentially what we're kind of witnessing. That would be the ancient equivalent of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the crowd is listening in, and we are listening in to a very tr- a kind of special moment where Jesus and his followers, and he's trying to train them in a new way, his way of life. And so in Matthew 5, verses 38, he says the words, you've heard it said, because these are the 12, and he's throwing back to the Jewish scriptures, and he's about to step back into, I know you've heard this, but let me tell you this. This is why uh, in this whole portion of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus does that a few times, because he's trying to help reorient the way they think. He's trying to give them a new default. And he says, you've heard it that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. If anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you, and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Now, the thing that's important to understand about this, remember, this is written in a first century context. And what I can pretty much assume for all of us is that this passage does not seem to fit your life at all. I doubt you've been slapped this week. I doubt someone has demanded that you walk another mile with them this week. I doubt someone has tried to take your shirt literally off of your back. And because of the distance of almost 2,000 years, what can happen is we can easily misread what Jesus is saying. Jesus is not advocating or encouraging staying in an abusive relationship. He's not advocating or encouraging being in relationships without boundaries. This is not what he's saying. He's not justifying. He's not kind of overlooking or, or even kind of blessing injustice at a societal level. He's not doing any of those things. And the first century audience that Matthew's writing to wouldn't have thought that because they were living in the culture that Jesus is living in when he's teaching them this. What Jesus is actually doing is he's talking about incidences that we can experience in life. He's not talking about relationships that we would be in in life. You notice all four of these are distinct moments or incidences. So he's not, he's not advocating against having boundaries or anything. Boundaries are helpful. Abuse is wrong every single time. And so what Jesus is doing is he's taking something that would have been the conventional wisdom of the day Right? He says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye 
and a tooth for a tooth. Now that saying is specifically what unlocks it for us. So this was something that was delivered to the Jewish people. It's found in what would have been the Jewish um, portion of the scriptures around the law, like Deuteronomy, Leviticus. Um, Those were the ancient law books of the Jewish scriptures. And what most of us don't realize is that when uh, the Jewish scriptures were not just scriptures, they were actually the Constitution, they were the Bill of Rights, they were their government documents, not just their God documents. And so an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth in its original context when it was delivered was a really profound and ingenious societal law. It was given to them not for the individual, but for society as a whole. The reason why is because when it was delivered, what it did was it created a justice system that was even handed, regardless of the person's position in life. Because in ancient times, and unfortunately still in modern times, a rich person gets away with more than a poor person. If you look into our prison system even today, the prison system is disproportionate to what happens societally. And so what Jesus was doing when he's throwing back was when that law was given for the society, it meant that a rich person and a poor person in the, in the eyes of justice were equal. And so an eye for an eye was about equal retribution, equal pay, regardless of what position you held in life, regardless of the power or the status that you had in the culture at the time. It was actually an incredible, progressive, and profound law given to the Jewish people. Thousands of years before, most societies even woke up to this. One of the the triumphs of the the American justice system, at least in principle, is this is how our justice system is enacted. We don't have caveats. And so when Jesus is delivering, he's not attacking the societal application of this. What he's doing is he's pressing into a problem that's happening in that first century, which is that what was meant to be for the public good has been imported into the private individual level life. And so what was meant to lead to justice is now justifying vengeance and revenge. Now the individual feels empowered to an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So if you If you do this to me, I'm going to do it right back to you. And that's what Jesus is pressing into this passage. That's what he's leaning into because he understood that there's an inherent weakness when this is applied to the individual's operating system in life. That it doesn't work. As it's been said before, an eye for an eye leaves the world blind. That if someone slaps you, you slapping them, doesn't unslap you. Taking revenge doesn't help you. It doesn't heal you. It just damages you and the person you just damaged. Like revenge is, 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 is poison because it feels good initially, but it kills you in the long term. And this is what Jesus is pressing into. And what he does that's really insightful in that first century is Jesus takes four different moments. You see them in kind of succinct little sentences. He takes four different moments that were highly predictable in that day. 
It was almost a guarantee that if you were living in the first century, you were going to experience all four of those. And not only was it completely predictable that you would experience those four, it was also quick, essentially predictable and how most people responded to those four. And this is why on the surface it can feel a little distant for us because when he says to them, when someone slaps you, we're like, all right, I like no one slapped me this week. I think I'm good. I got this verse lived out. Check. I haven't taken anyone's eye and I haven't punched someone and removed their tooth. I think I'm living this thing out. I got it. Well, when he's talking about the slap, you notice he says the right cheek. There's a reason he says the right cheek. Is because in what he's alluding to with that type of slap is um, the first century, uh, it was Middle Eastern culture, very honor, shame oriented. And so there was something that was almost worse than being punched in the face. It was being slapped in the face with the backhand. So if you slap someone like this, the back part of your hand, that was one of the most offensive things you could do physically to someone. Because it wasn't just an act of physical violence. It was a shameful, degrading act that you did to someone. And it would be a public humiliation. And so when you slap someone on the right cheek like that, what you normally would do is somebody would slap back and it would kind of degrade into this Monty Python skit where both people are just slapping each other in the right cheek back and forth. Right? I mean, this is what they would do. They would just slap back. That's what you did when someone slapped you in this very demoralizing, humiliating way. You take that. Well, you take that. Well, you take that. And back and forth. And what Jesus does is he elevates it to this almost comical level. And he says, if somebody slaps you in the right cheek, turn to them the left. It's like, oh, big boy, you hit me with your right little backhand, but let me see you do it with your little left-hand limp. So all of a sudden, it removes the sting of this shameful, embarrassing thing that you try to do to them. He's removing the sting of that slap because the slap stung not because it hit your cheek, but because what the slap said about you. And this was Jesus' genius turn. He says, turn the left cheek. It's like, okay, you hit me. If that's all you got with your right hand, go ahead and hit me with the left because that's going to feel good. Okay, thank you. Because the default is to hit him back. And then he moves on to this next illustration. He says, if someone demands your, right, he, he uses the shirt, coat, that's how it's translated in our version. It's actually a throwback to the way they were dressed So an average Jewish person in the time, uh, Romans somewhat similar to in their attire for the day, um, your basic cloth, your clothing was this. You had a loincloth, which would be essentially our underwear today. You would have what they call in in the English translation a shirt, which was not really a shirt. It was actually a full body um, kind of tunic or like clothing, and, and it would go from head to toe. And then on top of that, you would have your coat. And so that, that was your clothing. You didn't have multiple pieces of clothing. There, you know, it was, it was pretty basic in the morning. You pretty much put your coat on and your sandals and you walked out the door. And so by law, at the time, if someone sued you, they could take your shirt off your back. And Jesus is saying, if they take your shirt, give them the coat too. 
Now, here's why this is absurd. And again, Jesus is doing the exact same thing he did the first time. Is it was illegal for someone to take your coat. It was against first century Jewish law for you to take someone else's coat. Because what would end up happening is they're standing there in their sandals and their loincloth. And because it's an honor-shame culture, you could never, you could never leave someone naked. And what Jesus is doing here is he's pushing to the heart issue that's going on when someone takes the shirt off your back. When someone takes the shirt off your back, they're, they're not physically just taking a piece, a piece of clothing. They're actually doing more than that, aren't they? Like you, you people um, growing up, there's kind of this joke of like, you know, you've got a presentation and you, you, you show up in your, for your test and you're unprepared and you're like naked, Right. Or you're like wearing your PJs. That's like this idea that clothing, those dreams that are almost kind of universal enough that they can make them jokes on television. What it's really hinting at is us feeling completely exposed and vulnerable. Caught off guard. And what Jesus is saying, when they go to take your shirt and, they, and when they do that, they leave you feeling vulnerable and exposed. He was like, go ahead and give them your coat. They have to turn the coat away, by the way. If you offer someone your coat in the first century, they have to be like, you know I can't take your coat. No, seriously, take it. I can't take your coat. Put it back on. But see, what happens is in that moment, Jesus knows that what he's actually doing is you're getting back the thing that they just took from you, your dignity. Again, he's, he's pressing deeper and deeper. And then he jumps to the third, which is around the Roman law at the time, which was a Roman soldier could demand that a Jewish citizen carry his bags for a solid mile. That was a Roman mile, so that's like 4,452 feet or something like that. So it's a little bit less than kind of a standard U.S. mile by like 1,000 feet. Um, but it's still a considerable distance. And so a Roman soldier would... With no recourse, you couldn't do anything to say, all you had to do was say yes. They could walk up to you and demand that you carry their bags for the next mile. And you would have to pick the bag up and you would count off every one of those steps because the moment you got to that last step, you could drop the bag and you could walk away. But every one of those steps before that moment felt very, very, very powerless degrading and dehumanizing because some other individual was lording over you in a way that you couldn't even resist it and every number you counted in your head was just a reminder of how much power they had and how little power you had and then what does jesus say that's so amazingly ingenious he says if someone demands you go a mile then when you get to that last step and you're like 4,452, and they're like, okay, you can drop it. You're like, no, it's been a good workout. Let's go another. It's like one, two, three. You see, the first mile, they took the power from you. But with each step that you took in the second mile, you took the power back. It was ingenious because now you're like 4,453, 54, 55, and that Roman soldier is sitting there and they're like, 
You don't have to do this, you know. Oh, I know. I want to. It's my privilege to carry this bag for you today, Mr. Roman soldier. It's my honor to carry this. And so by the, the time you get to the second mile, the Roman soldier is begging you to put their bag down. They're like, please just put the bag down. Because you're like, no, let's talk. How's the family? What do you think about the, where have you been? Do you have another assignment coming up? Where are you going next week? And you're like, please just leave me alone. No, 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 no. I still got 731 left. 730. And so Jesus is giving them power back with this move. He's allowing them to reclaim power and autonomy. And the ingenious act of what Jesus is doing with these four little vignettes is he's actually causing a little bit of a shock value. Not just his 12 disciples, but the crowd listening in would have almost been like, what in the world is Jesus? This is crazy. This is not normal, what Jesus is saying that we should do. Now, the thing that's essential to understand is Jesus is not giving some new prescriptions. He's not saying this is what you have to do. He's using a little bit of hyperbole to make a point. He's trying to point them to a, a different way. Because no first century Jew would have ever been found naked. No one, they wouldn't have given the coat. Jesus is, is fully clothed when he's teaching them. The, the point in these exaggerated moments was to draw attention to what he wanted them to do, not the way they normally did things. And But the actual true genius of what Jesus is doing is not what he's saying. It's actually what he's teaching them in the how. So it's not the what. It's the how that's actually being modeled for him. And that how is the part that transfers to us. It's the how that you and I can apply when we sit across the dinner table and it's our uncle or it's our cousin or it's our sibling or it's the new boyfriend or the new girlfriend of the other person you know, the one that's different than at Thanksgiving, right? And so now it's just like we're in a different place because there's a how that Jesus has modeled that does apply to those. So let me give you three S's that Jesus models for them that does that we can all grab hold of and have in our back pocket immediately for the next week or any day that you find yourself in. The first S, which is I don't want to skip over it because I think it's actually really important, um, but it's subtle, is the S of Scripture. He's saying, I heard, you've heard it said this, but I tell you this. He's giving them a truth. He's giving them a reorienting, recalibrating, foundational piece of truth to have in their mind to guide them in every circumstance. And while you, if you would like to memorize this entire passage, you can do that. I want to give you a different scriptural passage that you can memorize today before you walk out. It comes from Proverbs 15.1, and it's, it's a really good summary of everything that was just said here. Proverbs 15.1 says this, A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. A gentle answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. That, that first S, Scripture, gives us an instant recalibration whenever we find ourselves in these moments. Like, oh, what's that past? Oh, a gentle answer turns away wrath. But a harsh word stirs up anger. If I say that, then I'm just inviting that to show up at our dinner table. And I don't want that at our dinner table. I don't know if you've ever been at a dinner table when that anger shows up. 
or when something from 15 years all of a sudden becomes a central piece, and you're like, hmm, these potatoes. Right? I mean, it gets awkward. None of us want to, you're just like, when can we leave? So you're like, okay, scripture, got it. Gentle answer, look, harsh, no anger, no, okay, good. Second S, and this is where it gets really individual, is scenario. You know, Jesus throws out four scenarios that were predictable, that people could, you could bet money they were going to happen to you probably that week. See, I don't know your situation. I don't know who you work with. I don't know the teenager you have in your house. I don't know the family member that you have to deal with this week. I I don't know the next door neighbor that you have that's driving you insane, but you do. You know what you're going to get in the next week. You know what's going to happen tomorrow. What are those people in your life? What are those moments, the ideas, the topics that you could almost bet money is going to happen? Is it the teenager rolling their eyes, slamming the door? I never get anything after they've opened 17 Christmas presents in front of you. Is it that moment that's super predictable? Is it your ex saying certain things? Is it your coworker being passive aggressive? Is it that family member who drinks too much and drinks too early? And and now their filter is gone and they're saying things that should not be said? What's the scenario for you? If if I were gonna ask you a week from now, hey, where did it go wrong? What would you tell me about? Well, here's the beautiful thing. Jesus is teaching us in this example. Go ahead and grab hold of that before it happens, and let's take that scenario and be prepared for it. So in the message notes, we, you know, we, we have two little blocks for you or in the paper handout you walked in. Go ahead and put the name of the person. Go ahead. If you're afraid because they're sitting right beside you, okay, I give you permission to make up a new person's name. It's like, no, of course not, honey. This is not you. No, no, no. This is... This is another SP, um, right? And, and so like, but go ahead and write their name down and put what the scenario is. This is the moment. And then, not just the scenario, the third S is steps to take. What are the steps you're going to take, not reactively, but proactively right now when you're not mad, when you're not angry, when you don't want to slap them, but you actually have a desire for good for them, What are the steps that the best version of you would take? What are the steps that Jesus, if he was sharing your example in this passage, what would he say to do instead of what we typically do? And write those steps down. Because you're going to experience it. It's just a matter of when, not if. And so if you're able to prepare in advance then you're in a position to actually do the very thing you prepared for. Look, what Jesus is doing here, this is like, I know we live in a day and age where our military, our police force, our firefighters, all of them are trained with this pre-planning kind of paradigm already. But this is, in, this is so far ahead. Before SEAL Team 6 ever realized that they could kind of run through the motions of the raid they're about to take, Jesus was giving it to his disciples. 2,000 years ago. Like, I am amazed at Jesus. 
not just because of what he did for me, but even in this moment, I mean, like there is not an IQ test that can measure the wisdom that he's unpacking for this. I was going to throw out two books to read, and I was like, man, the only reason I like those two books is because everything these two books tell you that made them bestsellers this year or two years ago, they're they're things Jesus did 2,000 years ago before those books were written. He is the most amazing, incredible, insightful, wise, powerful, and kind person ever. And what he's doing right here is genius. And it will change your holiday circumstances. Because when they sit there and they start unpacking and unloading and saying those things in that scenario you've already thought through, and you have steps that you can take, all of a sudden you walk away from this Christmas dinner and you're like, that wasn't nearly as bad as I thought it was going to be. Turns out if you know what you're going to say ahead of what they're going to say, You're in a far better place when you leave. Because look, how many of our moments have we allowed other people to rob us? I mean, every scenario Jesus shares is about what those people ultimately end up taking from you. And it's not just your coat. What they end up giving you is regret. What they end up giving you is frustration. What they end up giving you is, I feel like I wasted my time. And Jesus is saying, look, that may be how they are, but you don't have to make that exchange anymore. They can be the problem. They don't have to be your problem. And so let me give you a couple steps just to jog your mind as you think about it, because I do think you need to think through these steps around that scenario that you know is coming. It may be that you say, you know what, my step is when they start to unwind and unpack I'm just going to do a really good job listening, and I'm going to try to summarize their their opinions and their words better than even what they could do. And so when they get really upset and they start lashing out, I'm going to say, it sounds like you're really frustrated about what mom said to you. Yeah, I'm frustrated about what she said. Did you did you not hear that and how she said well, the way I spend my money? It sounds like when she started talking about money piece, that really made you angry. Yeah, it makes me so angry when she presses into and gets like super nosy and steps into things that she shouldn't have anything to do with. It sounds like to me that makes you feel like she thinks you're still a child. Yeah, I'm a grown man. I'm a grown woman. Yeah, you are. You are a grown man. You are a grown woman. Aren't you so glad that she doesn't have to? Even though she says that to you, that you don't have to listen to it anymore. Now, instead of you, you haven't defended either person. All you've done is listened. All you've done is mirrored back what they've said to you. But did you know, neurologically, every time someone has, this is crazy. So they've done this, which is, to me, such a fascinating experiment. Um, They put people in functional MRIs, and they were given, like, negative emotions. They were, like, Triggers, things that made them angry, frustrated, sad. And what they noticed is whenever uh, the individual engaging with that person who was in the functional MRI, 
whenever they labeled the sadness, whenever they labeled the anger, whenever they labeled the frustration, what happened was the kind of the neurological signals that were intensifying that anger or intensifying that sadness dropped a little bit. You can you could literally watch their brain dial turning down each time the label happened, each time it happened. So now they're angry, but now they're a little less angry. Now they're a little less angry. Now they're a little less angry. You haven't said anything. All you've done is said back to them. But that, that speaks to a human need of us wanting to be listened and heard and validated. And you can listen, hear, and validate even if what they're saying is not valid. If they're spewing off about how the government conspiracy to cover up Sasquatch's existence in the Pacific Northwest is a threat to our national security, you don't have to have reasons it is a threat to the national security. You can listen. You can label. You can pull out. You can ask them more questions. And you can even say something like this. Uncle Jim, I am amazed at the level of knowledge and detail of research that you've put into this. Uncle Jim, I am absolutely convinced if more people were passionate about important things in their life the way you are passionate about Sasquatch, our world would be better. Uncle Jim, you I just need you to know, Uncle Jim, you inspired me today. Because I need to lean into those things I'm passionate about the way you lean into this. And I hope you unlock those secrets. I can't wait to watch you do it. Can you please pass the potatoes, Uncle Jim? Now, all you've done is what would have normally been an eye-rolling, oh, my goodness, not again, Uncle Jim, and the Sasquatch thing. Well, now you've validated Uncle Jim, and Uncle Jim, for the first time, feels like my family just listened to me. And not only did they listen to me, they actually saw the value. Because there's something valuable about the passion. There's something valuable about the level of research underneath it. And you, you, you call that out. And after you've listened, you've labeled, you've validated, you've been able to kind of understand and affirm if you really, really want to have the argument, then that's on you. But I don't know about you, but I've found that most people in life don't really care about facts. They already have made their mind up, and you're not going to change it. And as a grown man, I've learned when there are really heavy things I can't lift, it's just better for me not to try to lift it. Because the only person gets hurt is me. And I'm like, oh, Jenny, I got this. Don't worry. All right, Chris, I think two people should be lifting that dresser. No, 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 no. Strap it to my back. I can carry it down the steps. You know? It always ends bad for me. And when you get to an argument like that, that is unmovable, that is unliftable, save yourself the pain. Don't even. Make the choice to do the steps and just do the steps. And in the end, everyone's better because of it. 
But the true beauty of what happens, and let me give you those two books in case you really want to dig into this because it's not a, a holiday thing. This is a work thing. Um, one of the best books I have ever read on negotiation tactics, um, which is really what we're talking about here, um, is Never Split the Difference. Um, I've dug into a lot of different negotiation trains of thought. I'm a nerd. I recognize that. I, I like to know the different schools of thought around negotiation. Never Split the Difference is a really good, really good book, um, especially around mirror and labeling, which is what I've been teaching you about here. That's just how he would label it. Um, and another one is How to Have an Impossible Conversation, which has some really good, insightful um, pieces of advice. All the things that you're going to read in those books that are really profound and insightful, Jesus did it. When you read the, read the biographies on the life of Jesus, you'll realize, oh, Jesus did that. Oh, Jesus did that. Yeah, because all truth ultimately comes from God, and they're just robbing it. And, and even if they don't see it, I see it because I see it. And so those are two really good books that could really be helpful for you, and especially going into 2020, if this is a coworker, or if this is an ex, or this is someone like a teenager in your house, and you just need to learn. I'm, I'm telling you, these things, when you dig into it and you start to apply it, can help you have better conversations with your teenager, can have you, help you have better conversations with your ex-wife or ex-husband or the coworker at your work that would be the person who would throw ferrets at cars as they drive by in I-90, I okay? Seriously. Um, but I think the true genius of what Jesus is doing um, is actually illustrated um, in this research that came out of the Korean War. So in the aftermath of the Korean War, there was a Portland State University psychology professor named Dr. Wesley who was intrigued by this strange phenomenon that occurred during the Korean War. There, was the, there were POWs that actually defected to the North Korean side. And he was like, why are some of our POWs defecting and joining the North Korean army during the Korean War? And as he began to research and look into it, what he found was that all the defectors had come from one single regiment that was trained at one, one single camp during the Korean War. So during the Korean War, before a soldier was traveled over there, they went through training camps. And one U.S. training camp, when the soldiers were going through it, um, were taught that North Koreans were evil, vile, wicked, horrible people. They were fed all of these things about how nasty and brutal they were. And so every person who was captured, the people that were captured, the only ones who defected went through that training camp. And the reason why actually points to something that Jesus is alluding to, even in the basis of his training here. See, what ultimately converted and transformed and caused a defection was not that these people were tortured as POWs. It's that when they encountered the North Koreans in the POW camp, what they found was not barbarians. What not, they didn't find cruel, animal-like individuals. What they encountered was kindness. And it was kindness, not torture, that caused the defection of these POWs with the North Korean side. And I'm telling you, we underestimate the power of kindness and what it can do in our lives, in the lives of people around us. Kindness can literally cause someone to walk away and join the enemy's side. And this is what the professor realized. And this is what Jesus was teaching his disciples that day. 
was that when you respond in the way that he laid out for us to respond, ultimately reflecting him, that what we do is we take a moment that's inherently volatile, that's inherently explosive, that's inherently capable of destroying and burning stuff to the ground. And we use that fire that could burn the bridge to create a sense of warmth instead of destroying the bridge. Whenever I go into a hard conversation, this is one of the things that I will literally do, is I will say to myself or write down in a notepad as I'm thinking about the meeting, because I do this with hard meetings, um, I'll say, make sure you leave a bridge. And what I mean by that, what ultimately Jesus modeled for us in this, is that when we, when we have these moments at the table, when we have these moments at work, when we have these, these moments in, um, in our, the course of our lives, and we burn a bridge, then what ends up happening is you have this chasm between two people. And what happens when you have a chasm between two people is that both people commit even more to their side. But when you leave a bridge, you leave a way for reconciliation. When you leave a bridge, you leave a way for people to be restored. And even, even when they don't deserve it in your mind, even when you think they're harsh, there's a chance that perhaps one day they, they'll come to their senses. And if there's not a bridge there, they can't walk across it back to you. Your teenager can't come home to you if there's not a bridge to walk across. You will never have reconciliation with your ex-husband or your ex-wife if you don't leave a bridge. You're never going to have hope for a better relationship at work with that coworker if there's not a bridge for them to walk across. And when we respond this way, we're leaving the bridge intact. Doesn't mean we don't have boundaries, but it means we leave a bridge. And they're able to walk across and find restoration in the relationship. Because you didn't allow them to burn it. And you didn't burn it either. And ultimately, what Jesus would teach that day about becoming a bridge and being people who leave bridges instead of burning them to the ground. His explanation of that would eventually become the example that he would show the crowd that day. Because Jesus would step into mock trials, sham experiences, where injustice was done and in the course of being slapped in the course of being ridiculed in the course of being humiliated his response was at a higher level he took a higher way and what he unpacked for us as an example of life became a way to life and that Jesus became a bridge for us that it is God's kindness that leads us to be able to return back to him I recognize for some of us, the way, the choices we've made, the things we've done in our heads and in our minds, God would never want to talk to us. God would never want to see us, that we need to get our life in order before we could ever walk back to him. And the beauty is what Jesus taught that day and what he modeled on the cross for us three years after this was a bridge that his kindness, his gentleness, He's not Zeus throwing lightning bolts at us. He's patient with us. And he loves us. And that Jesus' death and his resurrection was 
literally a bridge that we can cross back where we can find life in him, where we can find hope in him. And it's a bridge that, that no matter what you've done, where you've come from, whatever you did this week, it's a bridge that's in place for you to take a step across. And that bridge is open for anyone and everyone. And maybe this Christmas, the, the step you could take is to, to take a step on that bridge. And realize that God is open-handed and he's waiting. He's not angry at you. He's not waiting to see I, say, I told you so or I got you. He's, he's waiting to say, I love you, I forgive you. And all you have to do is step across that bridge and acknowledge that. That's the beauty of the Christmas story. And what Jesus has modeled for us and what he has explained for us is that regardless of what we step into, whether we're the difficult people or whether we're sitting across the table from them, that we can be people who construct bridges, who with the foundation of scripture, of knowing that we can respond in a way that brings life with the scenario already planned and prepared for it with the steps that we can take, that we can actually transform not just us, but even those difficult people across from us that we thought would never, ever be possible. Let's pray.